Welcome, boys and girls, to the Six Demon Bag Halloween Storytime Spooktacular. Wow, I'm very excited. The Crypt Keeper, I don't know where he went. He's gone now. You mean the Bag Keeper? I'm bag glad keeper. that guy scares me. I thought the Crypt Keeper was a lady. It's is not. he inside all of us? The Crypt Keeper is not a lady. No. Maybe the, do, wait, do the we know that for a fact? Well, maybe he's gender the fluid. The Crypt Keeper is a cis, white, male, heterosexual. <laughs> Who doesn't like a little Halloween shopping? <laughs> this tale is The Crafting Lady by Edward M. Erdelak. It was a weirdly warm October afternoon. Benjamin's mom hadn't let him stay in the car or he'd never be in the fabric store with her. Cindy's Crafts was probably the least interesting place on earth for a nine-year-old boy. At least in the long line at the bank he could get a handful of dum-dum suckers from the bowl the teller kept behind the counter and there was a TV in the waiting room of the oil change place. At the drugstore he could pick out cereal and cookies. Even staying in the car, he had the radio, and when Benjamin's mom left him alone, he could listen to whatever music he wanted, but it was a warm day and the car's A.C. was busted. The fabric store was a desert for Benjamin, a wasteland of fabric bolts and wicker baskets, spools of thread and too many shades of brown, drawers stuffed with envelopes of crinkly McCall's patterns, packs of weird-looking scissors and 30 different kinds of glue. It smelled of his mom's sewing room, and there were never any other kids in there. It was the dullest place in town, except around Halloween. Not because the people who ran Cindy's Crafts pulled all the Halloween costume patterns and the orange and black fabrics out, but because they dedicated half an aisle by the register to Halloween decorations. Benjamin went directly there while his mom wandered off to the back of the store where they kept the sewing machine parts and the cutting tables with the big cloth slicers. There was never anything really cool and creepy in the Halloween aisle, but Benjamin held out hope. It was mostly just a lot of cutesy stuffed scarecrows and happy-looking black cats, stacks of plastic candy buckets shaped like pumpkins or cauldrons, and the occasional waving, motion-sensitive witch that looked more likely to bake a kid cookies than to bake them into cookies. The other half of the aisle already held Thanksgiving decorations. This year, Benjamin was hoping to talk his mom into getting some of those fake cobwebs to string on the trees on the porch. His dad hated the stuff, he knew. Said it was too much of a bitch to clean up. They never went all out in the yard for Halloween. Just taped a couple posable paper skeletons in the windows and set out a jack-o'-lantern. Emory was a tiny, spread-out town dominated by sunburned retirees on riding lawnmowers, sleeping like an old dog in the corner of Indiana. It was always on the brink of being swallowed up by one of the nearby, bigger communities. It only had nine kids in it, and they hardly saw each other outside of busing to school and nearby couts. Not enough kids to warrant much more than half an aisle of Cindy's Crafts once a year. The drugstore didn't even stock enough candy to warrant a good post-Halloween sale in November. Some people left their porch lights on and a bowl of assorted mini candy bars outside, sometimes on a bale of hay if they were really feeling in the spirit, but only if they lived near one of the nine kids in Emory and were friendly with their parents. It was basically the worst place for a kid to trick-or-treat. Usually, Benjamin's parents drove him a half hour to Valpo. He went into the aisle not expecting much and stopped short when he saw a stocky little pear-shaped woman 
with a pile of construction vest orange hair atop her head. She was balancing tiptoed on a step stool, arranging a line of surprisingly cool looking Halloween masks on the top shelf. She wasn't the only new thing. Half the aisle was packed with the neatest decorations Benjamin had ever seen. There were full-size plastic skeletons dangling from hooks, bigger than he was, and a whole range of skeletal animals. Cats arching their spines, eyeless crows peering from little wire cages, bats with outspread bony wings, and rearing rats with segmented tails winding about them. The paper decorations ran the gamut from wrinkled, snarling witches to life-size, dull-eyed Frankensteins. He saw faux paintings like the kind you see in haunted houses, which changed before your eyes as he passed them from gaunt, prim-looking people into riding zombies and spectral ghosts. In short, it was awesome. The little orange-haired lady on the stepstool turned at his appearance and smiled a matching bright orange-lipped smile that inflated her chubby pale face. Vampire bats dangled from her ears, and her homemade dress danced with candy corns. Her stout ankles were settled in stripy green and black stockings, and little jack-o'-lanterns grinned from the buckles of her shiny black shoes. Hello there, she said pleasantly. Benjamin's attention was drawn to the masks she was setting on the shelf. They weren't those cheap plastic veils with the string at the back that exposed your ears and the back of your head, ruining the illusion. These covered your whole head. There was an awesome, long-snooted werewolf gnashing its muzzle, with real wild black hair over the back and long, sharp ears. There was a rotting zombie, a creepy vampire, a creature from the Black Lagoon, others. But Benjamin's eye kept going back to the werewolf. The lady looked from him to the mask, her bright smile somehow getting wider, more delighted. She raised her fiery eyebrows and looked at him sideways, conspiratorially. Want to try it on, she asked in an exaggerated whisper. He only nodded, lips parted. She took the werewolf head off the shelf and held it down to him. He came over to look at it. He'd never had a mask like this one. He turned it over in his hands, feeling the texture. Every springy tooth, every wrinkle in the snout, every strand of coarse hair. He stuck his pinky in one of the nose holes. Go on, put it on, the lady urged. He slid it over his head, thrilled at the smell of real latex. Benjamin? His mom. He turned as she came to the aisle behind him, and she actually started at the sight of him. Oh! It was an intense thrill to see her jump, put a hand to her chest, and then chuckle nervously. That never happened with the plastic stormtrooper and superhero masks that were his usual costumes. Wherever did you get that? she exclaimed. Mom, Benjamin said, can I have this? But his mother was looking over his head, coming forward, smiling, sticking her hand out to the lady with the orange hair. Hello. You must be... Is it Alice? Alice Lepore, said the orange-haired woman, coming down from the stool to shake hands. We're neighbors, aren't we? I thought you looked familiar. Benjamin was vaguely aware that somebody had moved into the house on the lot next to theirs, but he was all only vaguely aware of the house itself. They were separated by a line of trees, and though his window looked out on it, he didn't see much of it except for the peak of the roof. An old couple named Beverly had lived there. It moved to Florida months ago. Yes, Jane Halleck, said his mom. I see you've met Benjamin. Not formally, said the woman, bowing slightly to him. Hello, Benjamin. Hey, said Benjamin, muffled. I think you've got a little werewolf on your hands this year, Jane, Alice said to his mom. Never seen one like this in the store before, his mom said, plucking it off Benjamin's head and turning it over in her hands thoughtfully. 
It seems like Cindy really has the Halloween spirit this year. Oh, I'm afraid I'm the guilty party here, Alice said. I convinced Cindy to let me take over some of her space this month. I used to run a Halloween store in Indianapolis. She spread out her black and orange painted nails to the shelves. What you see here is the last of my old stock. Some really neat stuff, Benjamin's mom said, though he knew she didn't care for horror junk and was just being polite. I made it all, even the plastic stuff. What? Really? said Benjamin, wide-eyed. Even the masks? Yep, I'm a big Halloween nerd. I had to sell off all the molds when I closed shop. That was how I convinced Cindy. No made in China or anything here. 100% American-made terror. Oh, wow, Benjamin's mom said. That is impressive. The werewolf mask was still in her hands. Can we get that, Mom, please? I thought you were going to be a stormtrooper this year. I was a stormtrooper last year, he reminded her. Hmm, I don't know, kiddo. She looked up at Alice. How much? Oh, I didn't price it, did I? Alice said in mock surprise. Tell you what, why don't you take that one? Really? Benjamin burst again. Oh, no, we couldn't. Take it. Consider it a welcome gift from a new neighbor. I think Benjamin would appreciate it more than a homemade pie, particularly from me, she snickered. I can't cook worth a lick. I think I'm supposed to bake you something traditionally, Benjamin's mother said dubiously. Oh, whatever. Tell you what, I get commission on everything sold here, so if Benjamin tells his friends at school about the cool mask he got at the new Halloween aisle here at Cindy's, she put her hands on her knees and looked down at Benjamin, smiling. She winked one orange-shadowed eye. Deal, Benjamin said excitedly. Alice and Benjamin's mom laughed. Well, if you're sure, she was. Benjamin told every kid on the bus the next day to check out the new homemade mask at Cindy's, and in the days after that, each shared the news that they'd selected the drippy zombie or the creature or one of the other masks. All nine kids in Emory were going to wear Ms. Lepore's mask that year, and even a couple of the kids from Couts. But Benjamin had been the first, and now he was bursting to tell them what he was going as. None of them had seen the werewolf mask. He had put it over the globe of his desk in his room, so it crouched there, waiting hungrily for Halloween. It seemed like October 31st would never come. He couldn't remember anticipating it as much as this year. Next door, Ms. Lepore transformed her house. She installed strobes that lit up the house and trees like lightning, and a machine that made thunder noises. She decorated her yard with fake gravestones. Cars would slow down, passing her house to gawk at it. At first, Benjamin's dad complained about the racket, but one day while they were eating dinner, there was a knock on the door and he answered. Miss Lepore was standing on the porch in another of her crazily colored Halloween-themed dresses. She asked Benjamin's dad if he'd like some extra fake cobwebs she had left over to string about the porch and trees, and to his surprise, his dad said yes. Benjamin guessed even he was getting into the mood thanks to Mrs. Lepore's yard display. The next day, his mom brought home some furry fabric and matched his werewolf mask and sewed it to the backs of a pair of his dad's old gloves to make werewolf hands. Everybody was in the Halloween spirit. Halloween fell on a Saturday, that most perfect of all days for trick-or-treating. The Friday night before Benjamin lay awake in the dark, admiring the glint of the moonlight off the teeth of his mask on the desk, willing the next day to rise and fall again so it would be Halloween night. He was still awake, imagining the reactions of his friends to his costume, 
when some shadow broke the moonbeams in his room and made him sit up, rubbing his eyes. He went to the window and looked out. Through the swaying bare branches of the trees, the moon was big and bright. Something caught his eye on the roof of Miss Lepore's house next door. It took him a minute to realize it was Miss Lepore herself. She was standing precariously on the point of the roof, wearing some kind of long, dark dressing gown that hung to the backs of her stark white knees. He wondered if she were somehow sleepwalking and thought to run to his parents' room and tell them in case she fell. But then she raised her hands up at the moon, and he saw that she was in fact completely naked. What he had taken for a nightgown was actually her incredibly long, unbound orange hair. The night breeze stirred it, and his face grew hot at the sight of her white, curved hips and a mole on her bare thigh. She turned in place, and he flinched, ducking down so that only the top of his head and his eyes peeked over the windowsill. He saw the shock of her plump, drooping breasts and the unimagined plunge of secret hair darkened the excessive paleness of her chubby flesh. It sent a shiver through him he didn't understand. She was smiling up at the sky, mouthing something he couldn't hear, her eyes closed. As she spoke, he saw the sparse black clouds floating across the night sky retreat strangely from the moon towards which they had been creeping, and funneled downward in bizarre twisting shapes that alit on Ms. Lepore's roof in three places. It was hard to see in the dark, but from those places, three tall, shadowy shapes took sudden, stood suddenly erect. Had they been crouching there all along? They were men, but apparently painted all black, the moonlight shining on their shoulders, and bald heads dark as crude oil. They were naked too, and they moved towards her, but strangely, jerkily, and on all fours. They crept in angles that should have made them lose their balance. One scuttled like a spider up and over the chimney as he came, and Benjamin saw that he was trailing something long and curling like a tail behind him. The three figures tackled her on her back. He was afraid for her at first, but Ms. Lepore only laughed in the wind as they swarmed over her. He could see her stubby white fingers with the painted nails clutch at them, draw them close. When they had finished with her, they did not rise like men. One scattered to the air as a flock of flapping crows lost in the dark. Another fled her white body as a horde of rats. The last scampered off the roof, yowling, a school of black cats that scattered into the woods like dreams before the drone of an alarm clock. But they had not been dreams. Benjamin knew because he didn't sleep that night. He watched Mrs. Lepore get up stiffly and climb down from sight, and he lay in bed awake, replaying what he had seen. His mom and dad were more disappointed than he was in the morning when he said he was sick and couldn't go trick-or-treating. They fed him hot soup and promised him he'd feel better by the time the sun went down, but he didn't. When they left him to sleep in his room, he heard Ms. Lepore's storm machine turn on, and he looked down and saw her sitting on the porch in a black skirt, her hair up again in that orange pile, the first of a row of pumpkins between her knees. Benjamin pulled the shade down on his window and knocked the werewolf mask off the globe. It fell behind his desk. He lay on his stomach on the bed, unable to think of anything but what he'd seen on Miss Lepore's roof the night before. It was the biggest, best Halloween night Emery ever had. People came from Coots and even Valpo to see Miss Lepore's yard display and trick-or-treat. But in the morning it was all gone, like the shadow men on her roof. The gravestones, the storm machine, even the fake cobwebs. Miss Lepore was gone too. 
So were eight children from Emory and Couts. Their parents had simply found their beds empty in the morning of November 1st with no explanation. The police said the doors and windows were all locked. No signs of entry or exit. Seven of Benjamin's friends and one from another town. The county sheriff searched Miss Lepore's property but found no trace of her either. There wasn't even any furniture in the house. Nothing in the basement or in the attic space. You would think no one had ever lived there at all except for the jack-o'-lantern she left lining her porch, peering through the railings. Nine of them in all. The Halloween decorations people had bought from the island Cindy's Crafts were torn angrily down and burned, replaced by flyers with photos of the missing children. Nobody had any pictures of Alice Lepore. About a week later, Benjamin, doing his homework, dropped his pencil behind his desk and reached down to get it. It took him a little while to remember what was strange. His mask. The werewolf mask Miss Lepore had given him. It wasn't where it had fallen on Halloween night. He had a terrible thought and ran downstairs, past his mother and father at the kitchen table, out onto the porch and down into the yard in the wet grass, soaking his socks. He pushed through the trees between the houses, dry leaves crackling, skeletal branches tugging at his clothes, his parents calling his name. He burst into Miss Lepore's yard and ran up to the house. He stopped there. The pumpkins were decaying, melting through the porch rails, collapsing in on themselves, the sharp young grins turning into sad old autumnal frowns, lined with white whiskers of rot. But behind those sagging faces, Benjamin saw the leer of hidden smiles, of rows of white teeth, some with braces and with rounded shape of human bone and dark, empty eye sockets poking through the rotting fruit. Eight skulls were found in all. The ninth pumpkin was empty. Orange, you glad I didn't say vampire? <laughs> Ed, thank you for that story. That was delightful. Mm. That definitely sold the, the Midwest Halloween mood. Um, I particularly empathized with that poor kid who was just stuck in a, a desert of boring <laughs> consumerism with no access to good Halloween decorations or masks or kids or fun or anything. Wasn't there a witch named something from the poor? There was, very good. Oh. Yeah, like, that's an actual witch was she name. Eating their flesh? There's never anything original in any of these things. <laughs> it's always something that's, that's a real person. There was actually a witch in Ireland, uh, Alice Lepore, who disappeared. Yeah. She, like, uh, murdered children and oh, stuff. Oh, after a bunch of kids disappeared, right? Yeah, and oh. she was never seen again. So. so what was she doing with those kid heads? And did the masks control them kids? The masks transferred their skulls into the pumpkins. Awesome. They just transferred them in? Yeah. Some and then the bodies, well, just, the bodies, like, disappeared. But. Just a straight teleport. Yeah. Oh, so the mask also disappeared? That was behind his desk? The masks were gone. Yeah, his mask was gone, and uh, his pumpkin was empty. The pumpkin that was intended for him was empty. Huh. I I, I love the description of the pumpkins rotting and mm. the heads inside. It was really, really cool. So, but to what end? Do you know what she was doing, or is that vague? I think she was eating them, personally. Them? I think she consumed the who kids, is, personally. Who is, or just uh, used them for spell components or something. I, at first, I thought they were part of the wild moonlight orgy. Like, she transformed the kids into weird monsters? And no, I was like, no. That was just her communing with her... Demons? Yeah, her demon familiars. I see, yeah. I see. Or patrons. Ooh, well, I will say that I could picture clearly every single part of that story. Even the mole on her thigh. Oh, especially the mole on her thigh. <laughs> This'll put the P in HP Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought my story last year was last minute, 
Well, hold on to your underpants. I wrote this story while drunk, after having no food, while peeing. And here it goes. The Advent. They waited. Oh, long years they waited. The stress and the ecstasy, disappointment and travails, fluttering hearts and sweaty, down and dirty, grinding livings. Now is the hour. Now the culmination. Now will their dark hearts grow darker still, awash in pangs of pain and ages gone fervent glory. Now they will know, now they will see. The chant begun, the flames alight, dancing in the negative space between the atoms of the eye. Somewhere the birth and death of galaxies alight the path of the traveler, and eons blink the scores of everything. The Legion is here, and now there is emptiness. I've been in this writer's group for like, how, how many years? 12, 15? That is the best individual fucking thing that's ever happened in this writer's group. Holy shit! <laughs> that includes my awesome-ass unemployment script. <laughs> Where did that come from, Ryan? It came from the bottom of a... The welling of the darkest yeah, of souls. I'll have what he's having. The bottom of that Oktoberfest beer. That was fantastic. You know, the delivery is... Yeah, it really was kind of crappy, was but it was just very well delivered. I'm starting to get nervous about my story now. I don't know if you can hold up to that. The chant oh begun. The flames alight, dancing in the negative space between the atoms of the eye. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, you really went nuts there. Well done, <laughs> sir. Well done. Elliot, you want to go with yours? No, because it's not even finished, and it's... The challenge was going to be trying to write it like Lovecraft. Yeah, that that is the challenge. You need to be drunk and peeing. Yeah. Apparently. I've got a tale for you. <laughs> Eyewitness by Jeff C. Carter. A sudden noise startles me from the disturbing dream of blood. It's the jangling door of the 24-hour diner. A guy pushes through with his shoulder as he rubs his right eye, and I blink my bleary eyes and sympathize. It's late, so late it's early, what my boss calls Zero Dark Thirty. Back on the force, we called it the ass crack of dawn, the ink-black hours when the serious shit went down. I'm almost looking forward to that queasy neon line on the horizon that drives the dope fiends back into their dens, almost. That light is also the start of another shift. Another day without sleep since I saw the crime scene. Just as well, the boss is relying on me to run down a lot of questions like how many bodies did they finally piece together, and more importantly, what the fuck is going on? The newcomer squints and shields his eyes. Fluorescent lights are harsh, and the janitor is using a mop to stir puddles of bleach and vomit. A parade of drunks had stumbled in after last call to soak up their regrets with cheap, greasy food. It hadn't worked. I miss the soft glow of my dashboard and a pine-scented solitude of my car. Give me a duct-tape vinyl seat and a Gatorade bottle to piss in and I'll work a stakeout for 72 hours. Anything but this revolving door of degenerates, drunks, and drug addicts. But the boss says I have to meet an informant, so I take another sip from the bottomless cup of swill. The trick is to drink just enough to earn my seat and without melting through my threadbare esophagus. The guy's still rubbing his bloodshot eye. Hay fever? Now he's in pain. Must be a scratched cornea, minuscule nick with the worst pound-for-pound suffering you can experience. He gets his whole fist into the act like a toddler holding a crayon and starts to moan. This guy's tweaking. Shit, my guy is tweaking. 
He matches the description of the informant. I suppose I can't blame him for taking a mental vacation after witnessing whatever freaky shit he's seen. Maybe some of this unleaded coffee will brace him enough for me to scrape the info from his corroded brain. He was the only eyewitness. The police were offering a reward for tips. News vans were drag racing around the city chasing rumors, but my boss wanted it more. He was offering cash. Connects, dope, even hardware to get someone to talk about the massacre. Something about it had gotten under his skin. If I didn't know better, I'd say my former captain was scared. Except I know better. Oh, except I did know better. He'd survived two tours in Nam, Fifteen years walking a beat and seven as the only honest cop in a dirty precinct. Even now, as an independent investigator, he was respected by both sides of the law. The boss doesn't spook. That means he's connected to all this somehow. The situation was personal, and I'm scared of what I might uncover. Would it test my loyalty? Not while I'm drawing breath. I throw him a nod. He doesn't catch it. I turn to face him. His good eyes shut now, squirting tears as he digs into the other one. That eye's really red. So were his fingers. I pretend to be a helpful stranger and give him a pat on the side. Hey, buddy, take a load off. I yank his sleeve down to plant him in a seat and pry his damned hand away from his eye. No, he shouts, and jams his finger back into his scarlet eye. So much for my cover, I have to control him before he ends up in an ER. I can't afford to lose him to a 5150, a detox, or the psych ward. I have one shot to find out what happened at that grisly crime scene. I slap my handcuffs around one of his bony wrists and crank it up behind his back. I wrestle him for the other one, but he keeps it in his eye. I outmatch him by several weight classes, so I lock him in a bear hug, pinning his arms to his sides. He knocks me down like a bowling pin. His shadow blots out the ceiling and I curl up, expecting a boot to the face. He ignores me and returns to his eye with both hands. A woman screams, the waitress I think, because a pot of coffee smashes beside me and scalds me with muddy liquid. The tweaker's eye collapses and he doesn't even slow down. He claws frantically like a rabid dog trying to get under a door. He screams impossibly loud, spraying the air with hot spit and fury. Get out! Get out! Get out! Get out! I don't know if it's a warning to us or a plea to something else. The other diners sober up, dive over the counters, or charge the kitchen doors. Some land on cowering waitresses. Others collide with the short order cooks and dishwashers brought out by the noise. I remember the crime scene photos of tangled, blood-spattered bodies. The tweaker has something spindly between his fingers. A glistening rope of pulpy, seaweed-colored flesh. I think it's his optic nerve till he drags it out three feet more. Get out! He throws his whole body into it, folding at the waist and whipping back his head. A dozen feet of strange, slick flesh wriggle between his hands, scintillating in the neon of the 24-hour diner sign. Its outer membrane shrivels, shrink-wrapping inward to expose a thorny column of knuckles and vertebrae. They kink up and crack like a whip, slicing through the tendons of his fingers. The entire mass recoils into the tweaker's skull. An anguished whine of despair escapes his chest. All of his struggle and self-mutilation has been in vain. His head droops and he wavers on his feet, arms limp like a waiting marionette. I gently move my hands to lift myself from the filthy floor. Everyone in the diner is holding their breath. My palms squeak through a puddle of coffee. Shards of glass crunch and plink into each other. The informant straightens and looks down at me. Hello, detective, an oily voice echoes through the diner. I see you've been looking for me. 
The tweaker winks his ruined eye. Something inside coils like a centipede. I answer with my sidearm, sending a full clip through the freak's head and out the plate glass window behind him. He smiles again, teeth tumbling from his ruined face. You shall now bear witness. It lifts me off the floor. I pistol whip him with my empty sidearm. Something in his skull bulges eagerly against the fractures. I switch to my drop point knife and shank him, panic driving my arm like a piston. He welcomes it, pulling me closer. It is time to see your boss. The tweaker presses his forehead against mine. My vision blurs as something in his eye socket slithers forth and into mine. I startle awake. The janitor pushes his mop past my feet. I yawn and check my reflection in the coffee. I look like shit. How long have I been up? I look around the diner and squint at the juddering fluorescence. Drunk club kids laugh with each other, mouths full of greasy food. A few homeless people dot the booths, refolding newspapers and warming themselves over bowls of chowder. I never want to see or smell another diner again. All the more reason to finish the job. The door chimes with a rusty bell. A thick-chested man with a tight salt-and-pepper mustache enters and gives me a nod. I rub my eye and smile. It's time to see the boss. Keep an eye out for strangers around your dinner. <laughs> gross, Jeff. Well, Super <laughs> gross. Who's the boss? Who's I don't know. The boss? I don't know. I've been experimenting with writing sort of more weirder fiction that doesn't answer all the questions. I like juddering. I didn't know that word. Oh, juddering my favorite. I got to be careful not to overuse it. Is it J U D E R? I like that the tentacles have like a knuckles inside. Yeah, creepy. It makes them really real. Cronenberg. Yeah. yeah, I was uh I had just written my first story for the spooktacular and I don't know how fun it is, maybe we'll find out later. And then this sto- I was in a I was in a coffee shop and a guy walked in rubbing his eye and I was like, "What if he just kept going?" And I was like, "Oh shit." <laughs> and I just got like this weird idea for a gross story about a guy digging into his eyeball and then something happening. Have you heard this thing about the left eye? People, people with injured left eyes, like uh, celebrities and athletes and TV people. There's all these pictures online of all these people that have their left eye is messed up, and so the there's Illuminati? some kind of conspiracy yeah, about the Illuminati. <laughs> They're either implanting something or taking something out through their left eye. Guys, I can't believe you saw through my story so easily. Ed, and, thank you for lending your vocal talents. Thank you, Jeff. In this tale, terror is off the chain. <laughs> I would like to offer the six demon bag a tale of canine wandering and warning I call The Dog Walker by Jeff C. Carter. When the sun goes down, it's time to bring out the dog. I could say that I walk it, but the truth is that it's walking me. It wanders from block to block, dipping its nose along the ground like a dowsing rod, occasionally veering to align itself along some invisible meridian. We never walk the same path twice. Every night is unique. This is simultaneously stimulating and relaxing, a sublime state I had feared lost once I quit smoking cigarettes. With my feet compelled and my mind untethered to anything but the leash, 
I like to ponder old quandaries like, Why do bad things happen to good people? Together the dog wanders, and I wonder, If there's a larger plan, the dog isn't sharing it with me. Some blocks make for less than pleasant strolling. Broken glass and used condoms sprout like weeds among the tilted, shattered sidewalks. Shit-stained newspapers and dirty needles clog the gutters. Things inside parked cars shift as we pass. Dark eyes, human and animal, peer nervously through greasy windows. The dog follows a smell down an alley to a dark-stained mattress. It traces the filthy edges with its fist-sized black nose and then pulls me onward. We leave Skid Row for a more respectable neighborhood. It's funny how such different worlds can exist next to one another, separated merely by that which is unwritten and unspoken. The people here sleep safe and snug inside their well-appointed homes. The facades are clean, but not where it counts. I'm no angel, yet I see darkness behind the white picket fences. Do you ever spot a wife with a black eye, or a child with a cigarette burn? Would you say something if you did? No, you don't poke your nose into other people's business. You follow the rules, because you're a good person. But bad things happen to good people. I am tugged from the orderly cones of streetlight into the chaotic shadows of tree-filled yards. The dog scours the wet grass, nose twitching as it discards the earthy night smells from the lingering trail of its prey. The families here insulate their children from the world with thick hedges and manicured lawns. How many sex offenders live in your neighborhood? No one has ever knocked on your door and declared themselves, like you think they're supposed to, but they're still there. This is all posted on a government website. I would call it eye-opening, but then you haven't looked, have you? You refuse to see the corruption. Its stench lingers around you. The hound moves with purpose now, hot on the trail. I step over a newspaper, ignored and left to molder in its wet plastic shroud. You like to skim the news, glossing over its daily death toll of faceless strangers. You want the headlines, like the story about the serial killer finally brought to justice. I know a thing or two about serial killers. The FBI estimates that there are as many as 2,000 serial killers operating under the radar. Your local police may suspect that one is stalking your area right now, but they won't reveal it. They don't want to alert the killer, or he'll change his pattern or go underground. In your trusty news, they help cover it up. They want the bigger, juicier story. Like you. They just want the headlines. The dog brings me at last to a gated driveway. The lawn on the other side is crammed with exotic cars and elegant statues in such excess that it looks like an expensive junkyard. It takes a moment to recognize that the towering stack of glass and steel cubes is the house and not a piece of modern art. It shines in the moonlight, flawless and kitchen clean. But the foul scent is so thick that the hound is drooling. It takes off without me and squeezes between the bars. I dig my heels in and hold tight. The beast strains at the leash, eager to be rid of me, choking itself in excitement. 
It takes me a moment longer to squeeze through the gate, but I manage. The motion detectors are dormant as we climb the front steps. The dog claws at the door, bristling and snorting. The alarms are silent. Together, we collapse and shift through wood, brick, and reinforced steel to breach the sinner's lair. He sees us as we coagulate from empty space. A balding 60-year-old man, caught halfway between the refrigerator and the laptop on his dining room table. The beast crouches to attack. What trail of evil deeds has brought us to this man's door? What is on that glowing screen? Is he a corporate raider? A money launderer? Another milk-toast weakling who waits until his family sleeps to troll the internet for child pornography? The little man turns to flee. I let the leash slip from my hand. The hellhound shivers off its illusion and lunges, exploding into a roiling black cloud. The man is engulfed in an orange-streaked void of gnashing iron teeth, continuously reforged from the engine of hellfire at its core. It devours him with brutal efficiency, sundering his body to excavate his diseased soul. I catch a glimpse of it, beneath the veils of fatty tissue and cascading blood. It shimmers, brilliant and opalescent, the divine spark of an uncorrupted soul. This man is innocent. I call off the hellhound. This is no easy task, but it is the one assigned to me. Like I said, I'm no angel, but I am endowed with enough power to bring the demon to heel. I shout the ineffable command words and wrestle with the snarling vortex. A pile of steaming shredded meat is excreted from the void. It splatters across the marble foyer, quivers, and contracts into a mortal shell. The geriatric newborn flops like a hooked fish. His withered flesh is stretched taut over organs swelling with tumors. His eyes roll and flutter, tethered to a brain that can never process the visions and agonies of hell. His mind and body are desecrated, but his soul is clear. The dog sniffs around the house, his victim already forgotten. With an old scent that had drawn it to the home of this undeserving soul, the beast weaves a new trail from the threadbare odors. Its ears perk up and it licks its chops, eager to resume the hunt. As we slip through the wall, I look back at the mewling man. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because you invite it. Not through malice, but sloth. You turn a blind eye to suffering. You're comfortable with evil outside your door. Perhaps you should help those around you become more righteous. Or perhaps we'll show up at your door. I guess all dogs don't go to heaven. <laughs> That's cool, Jeff. So was the guy, uh, was there a dog or was the guy like had a supernatural entity, like a hellhound on his leash? And stuff? He walked a hellhound every night. Did he know it was a hellhound? He knew, oh, yeah. but he what, knew. Was, what was he, though? He was a lesser demon? He was some kind of hellhound keeper. Yeah, I mean, I used to walk the dog through the streets of Venice every night, and I'd see all kinds of terrible fucked up shit. And I was like, there's a horror story in this somewhere. I'm like, what if there's a serial killer going around? I'm like, nah, what if it's a hellhound? And like, they go and they get bad people. And I was like, ooh, what if they get a good person? Because mm, that's more terrifying. Oh, well. Oh, so he... He, he, he got a good guy in an accident. And he, then just but he got a good guy that ignored loose. bad things. 
because everyone ignores bad everyone things. Everyone ignores bad things. Because you have... Only to save yourself. You have areas that are very poor next to areas that are very rich. And yeah. that was enough to get the hell home. Like stinging Sento. indictment of yeah. Google employees everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, boys and ghouls, it's time to close the six demon bag. Thank you for being our guests. Have a spooktacular Halloween. <laughs> Welcome, boils and ghouls, to the Dude. <laughs> no, Ryan, you fucked it up. But Tails. Oh, Ed's got a pretty good one too. All I can say is Tails. Welcome, boys and ghouls, to the 2018 Six Demon Bag Storytime Spooktacular. It's pretty good. Got it. <laughs> Talk about blue balls. I fear the giants. Tails. All I can Continue. say. <laughs> Start with that. Try to record that and see if you can't eke out from the six demon bag. Tales from the six demon bag. Here's a little tale that will get your cockles rising. <laughs> now, please enjoy our first tale of terrible terribleness. <laughs> probably use the same laugh over and <laughs> don't, don't necessarily killing yourself doing that. Tales from the bladder. Tales. Pea stream of consciousness. Pea. Pea stream of consciousness. Tales. Well, I don't mind you ringtone. Wink, wink. Ryan, say something scary. This is why they have leech laws. I feel like we've got the chops. <laughs>